0: We are Awakened Church in Buenos, and this is our podcast. Welcome. Uh, Spending the last few weeks, months, sort of um, just reading Daniel a lot and researching Daniel and just lingering in that space um, has been deeply impactful for me. And so the things I've learned and the kind of the inspirations I've gleaned from this story I simply, I think my dream as a preacher is just to sort of fall in love with the text in front of you. And I have also found um, the book of Daniel, I think maybe the time I studied it the most in my life was a child in Sunday school, right? Like if there's a VeggieTales version of a story in the Bible, it's likely the case that when you were a child is when you first encountered it and then it didn't really serve many purposes for you once you became an adult. Uh, And so here I am in Daniel as an adult, noticing that it's not a children's story and it is a deeply complicated, complex story with intersections of power and colonization, forced assimilation and fiery torment. And uh, there's a lot here. So um, I encourage you, if this is uh, your first Sunday here in this series, to go back and listen to the last two sermons on Daniel. But today, yes, we are in chapter two and three, where the king has his dream of a golden statue and wakes up the next day to build or erect a golden statue and then threaten all who do not bow down and worship it with fiery torment. Wow. So there's a lot here. I'm going to begin by reading a few verses from Daniel 2, uh, and there should be a slide, yes, and hopefully it's re- legible or readable. Daniel 2 2 to 6 begins So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So he's had, he, he's awoken up with a terrible, in, 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 from terrible dreams, or, or he can't even sleep. And as you remember from Daniel 1, um, this king has taken captive all of the kind of uh, wise and noble kind of upper class uh, folks of all the lands that this king has conquered and dominated. And then before these youth are, you know, able to stand before the king, they have to go to something like a residential school where they are given new names, new identities, a new diet so that they would ultimately be given a new body that looks like the body of the Babylonian empire. And so now, several years of training and forced assimilation, of being severed from your ancestral ways of knowing and praying and relating, now the the young men or the young eunuchs now most likely um, stand before the king. And the king summons them because he has been unable to sleep due to a, a terrible dream. It says, When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldeans said to the king, This is an important moment in the story. Uh, He uses the term Chaldeans, which is like another word for the Babylonians, meaning they stand in front of him now because they are no longer members of their their nation. Like he has completely severed them from their identity, their memory, their history, their past. They are now removed from time and he speaks to them Chaldean to Chaldean. And the, the book of Daniel in the Bible is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. It begins in Hebrew, which would be the ancestral language, the mother tongue of these subjugated boys. But here in Daniel 2 verse 4, the text switches into Aramaic, which is the language of the colonizer, the language they would be forced to learn. So um, imagine the original audience of this story, um, who first heard it in the original languages. Your imagination would just be captivated at this point, because you would have an elder uh, speaking to you in your indigenous language, and then at this moment it switches into English the language that you all had to learn. And so it's this powerful moment. It says, um, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and the book of Daniel is now in Aramaic until chapter 8. They start, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, this is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation." Wow. This king has had a dream, and he believes it is from the gods. He suspects that it contains a message for the state, but he is powerless to know its meaning. We must notice the irony here at the beginning of this story. The narrator is hoping that we notice something. This powerless king, gathers his smartest and wisest and most insightful subjects, essentially building an advisory committee, and he demands that they tell him what he was dreaming about, because he has no idea. There's a double irony here. So this most powerful man in the world is confessing to his powerlessness and incompetence, because he's like, I don't know what's real, I don't know what my dream meant, I need your help. And the second layer of irony is that this king is a colonizer. He has gathered his colonized subjects, and he admits to their face, I have no idea what this dream means. I have no idea how to figure out what it means. I have no idea if I can trust any of you to tell me the truth about what I mean, well, what it means. You see, I have conquered your land. I have forced you to learn my way of knowing, my way of discerning the truth. But now I need you to offer me advice, for I do not know, and I have no way of knowing. The advisory council has been successfully assimilated because they greet the king with the phrase, long live the king. Which is ultimately ironic because um, the dream he has, which we'll see in a moment, is about how very temporary his reign is. But these advisors have been fully assimilated to have no dream outside the success of this one vision of humanity. And they say, long live the king. After the king confesses, he is just awoken to a fearsome dream that will call his eternal reign to account. But these advisors, in their assimilation, have lost their connection to wisdom. And all that they know now is how to know what the empire wants them to know. And they are prepared. If the king would just tell them what he remembers about the dream, they could easily equate the symbols in the king's dream with positive affirmations of his success and triumph, like a horoscope or a greeting card. And so here we find the king caught in his own trap because the king, cannot trust the people that he has successfully turned into clones of himself. For they too have become incompetent. He does not have a council of wise advisers; He only has terrified subjects in an impossible situation because the king of kings, the man who holds all life in the balance, is entirely incompetent and no one in his entire dominion is allowed to say that out loud or even dream it in secret. No one can question the incompetent king. And yet everyone knows that the king is incompetent. And the this, this story begins this way, with this kind of dreaming king standing before his terrified subjects saying, I have no access to understanding this. What are your ways of accessing understanding? And they're like, we forgot all about that. We are Chaldeans now. Long live the king. And so I think this text, all of a sudden, is no longer for kids because it reminds us of the fact that all of the kings... All of the great rulers in human history have actually been completely incompetent and and, and completely out of touch with reality. And and that's part of kind of the archetype of this king. Everyone knows this, uh, but no one's ever allowed to say it. Uh, We know that our rulers and world leaders are often just bumbling fools, completely out of touch with the reality of the people they rule over. Just like the king of Babylon has no clue what reality is, what fears and longings and hopes and dreams the people have, So the great leaders of our history have revealed themselves as being stuck in the clouds. Asleep to the waking world. Think of Marie Antoinette commenting on the plight of her starving subjects. Let them eat cake. How clueless. There is a few quotes here. They were so easy to find and it was so hard to choose the the dumbest. You could think about U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. On February 12, 2002, in a Defense Department briefing, he said out loud, We know there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are things we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we know we don't know. The man in charge of the US defense. In 2003, Vice President Dick Cheney commented on invading Iraq and initiating a war on terror that would last eight years, cause the violent death of more than a million innocent Iraqi people, 1.8 million Iraqi refugees, and would end welcoming home one in four US soldiers with permanent bodily and mental health injuries. My belief is that we will, in fact, be greeted as liberators. How to reveal that you are out of touch? George W. Bush said in November of 2006, they misunderestimated me. It turns out, we always do. We always do. In 2004, this same president said what every other world leader has always said. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we they never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people and neither do we and not to harp on the republicans when barack obama was first running for president the one and only joe biden said publicly i mean you got the first mainstream african-american who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy i mean that's a storybook man (laughs) that's one giant confession in front of the world that you are completely out of touch and clueless In the same way, in 2005, you'll love this one, George W. Bush said to a divorced mother of three in Nebraska, you work three jobs? Uniquely American, isn't it? I mean, that is fantastic that you're doing that. The stupidity of kings is dangerous. Remember when Trump learned that Lysol and bleach could kill the coronavirus on surfaces, and then got behind the podium in a White House briefing and declared, I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. Is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets in the lungs and does a tremendous number on the lungs. Then pointed to his head and said, I'm like a person who has a good you know what. (laughs) He then asked the members of the National Security Council if they could nuke hurricanes rather than letting them hit the US. The king and Daniel waking up saying, I just had a dream and I have no idea what it means, but I think it's important. Can you tell me? And, and, and not to um, just pick on the United States, Justin Trudeau is maybe a more relevant example to the king in the book of Daniel. You see, in 2017, Justin Trudeau told Saskatoon Tribal Council Chief Felix Thomas, he said, there is no relationship more important to him than the one with indigenous people. He then said that most of the indigenous youth he spoke to wanted nothing more than a place to store their canoes and paddles so they can connect back out on the land. While condemning indigenous leaders for being out of touch with the wants and needs of the indigenous youths who were living on the reservation. He was accusing the indigenous leaders of being out of touch. He's like, I know what they want. They want canoes and paddles. So Cree NDP MP Romeo Saganash wrote a scathing and satirical response to Trudeau, voicing his support for the National Canoe and Paddle Programme, something he said that must have been erroneously left off the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Actions. He said that once the Canoe and Paddle Storage Programme is in place, he will personally paddle across the country to tell First Nations concerned about these projects not to worry as the urgently needed investment in canoe depots will help indigenous people protect their land and water. Often, the world leaders uh, open their mouths and reveal that they are fools, and they are clueless and incompetent, and have no idea what's real and what's not. Don't forget Pontius Pilate in John 18, 38, looked Jesus dead in the eye, looked an occupied Palestinian Jew in chains, completely disempowered, and at the mercy of the man holding his gaze, and he asked, What is truth? As if powerless to know, before bringing Jesus to stand before the brainwashed mobs and saying, I don't understand why you want to kill this man, but do what you want. Here in Daniel 3, the most powerful man in the world looks at his vulnerable subjects, the wisest of the bunch, and says, I've had a dream, and I think it's important, but I have no idea what it is, what it means, or how I can find out and I am completely out of touch with reality, but I have unlimited violent power. So if you cannot do the impossible thing, I will cast you into eternal torment, and if you can do the impossible thing that I cannot do, then I will welcome you into eternal paradise. It's heaven and hell, and narrow is the gate. The advisory committee responds in Daniel 2.11. They say, the thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. And then there's Daniel, who offers to tell him his dream. In Daniel 2, 18 to 19, it says, Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Imagine the good character in the story is not motivated um, by his own glory and honor. He, he, He genuinely doesn't want his friends to perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This part of the story shocked me this week, as I realized that God gave Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. Daniel prays to God, and that night Daniel dreams the king's dream. It seems strikingly beautiful and profound to me, and heartbreaking to me, that the dreams of the powerful king are filling the mind of the young colonized subjects. It made me wonder how many of us have had to dream the colonizer's dream? How many of us have had to accept the vision that serves someone else? How often have we accidentally dreamt Jeff Bezos' dream? The American dream? The prosperity gospel's dream? The slaveholder's dream? The dream that hard work and virtue would lead to safety and belonging? Perhaps we've accidentally dreamt the stock market's dream? The landlord's dream? the CEO's dream. Here we find young Daniel dreaming. Is he dreaming in Hebrew or Aramaic? I don't know. He's dreaming the dream of someone else. And in his dreams, there is a golden statue of a body that does not look like his. Throughout the scriptures, in our tradition, we are told to expect to encounter the wisdom of God in the foolish things of this world. And so the secrets are revealed to Daniel, and we see a man who's stuck dreaming the colonizer's dream, is not abandoned there. He is the foolish one of the world that will awake and reveal the truth that has been hidden. In Daniel 2 verse 20 we find uh, something like a a psalm or a poem. In Daniel 2 verse 20, um, it says Daniel blessed God and Daniel said blessed be the name of God from age to age for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. I love this so much, he doesn't say, blessed be the name of God, long live the king. He says he changes times and seasons. Spoiler alert, he's not made of gold. He deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Daniel's God knows what is hidden in the darkness. And light dwells in Daniel's God. This line is most striking to me because in Daniel's God, it seems, there isn't a dualism between light and dark. Daniel's God is not the God of light caught in a battle against Nebuchadnezzar, the God of dark. This isn't a battle between good and evil. That isn't the story. Daniel's God transcends the binary, rejects the dualism altogether. He says, I know all the things that are hidden in the dark, and light dwells within me. Reminds me of John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, where it says, All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Daniel is given the gift of divine wisdom. Hidden things are revealed to him until he's able to see clearly. Reminds me of Jesus' disciples being given the secret meaning of the parables. Daniel is given the secrets of the hidden things. He sees the king's dream. And in the dream, he sees a brilliant and terrifying statue made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Uh, he, He tells the king his dream. He says, you were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. Now, the word there, interestingly, is zelem which is the same word used in Genesis one twenty six, where God created the humans in the image of God. He sees an image of a God. There was a great image, and this image or statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. I love this because that reference to the word zelem, the image, the image of the king, made of clay and, and iron and gold and bronze, reminds us, of course, that human beings were created in the image of God or the statue of God. But the king of Babylon, like all kings in history, dream of their own image. And the image of the kings of the world is made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. In the dream, however, that this king dreams, there's a tiny stone that comes and strikes the feet of the statue, the feet that are made with clay, and the statue crumbles. And in Daniel 2.35, It says, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A small stone destroys it. A small stone takes the gold and silver and bronze and iron and turns it to chaff until it disappears, until it becomes nothing, not even a trace, an ultimate and eternal end. The king in the story, however, it's very strange. He's not moved to fear. This, this image doesn't terrify him. And I'm like, that's so weird. How does this vision not... Oh, I remember now. You're clueless. You're a king. You, have, you, you just saw... Oh, gold, head, me, king. Got it. That's it. He misses the point. He has no insight. He sees the gold and the iron, but he does not notice the clay and the stone. He has no sense that his kingdom exists in time, that he has no sense that his kingdom exists in a place. He has no concept that he is a human being living in human time and dependent upon the place where he stands, because empire always represents an age that cannot tell the time, an age that does not know its own name. Empire represents an idea of immortality, in which the image is ageless and nameless, unchanging and unresponsive. So the king in the story goes and immediately builds the image from his dream. According to his favorite bits of the dream, he builds a giant golden statue. And just, you, you have to pause here for a minute. Like if you heard the story a lot as a kid and you picture the golden statue, it's like what, what a fantastic ancient story. But just think, think about it for a moment. He erects a statue, a statue which has eyes that cannot see, a statue which has a head that cannot comprehend, hands that cannot touch, and a heart that is cold and immovable, timeless, ageless, nameless, and useless. It is the image of the king. It is the image of Babylon. It is the image of empire. It is the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, who also has eyes, but apparently cannot see and feet but cannot move, and a mouth but cannot cry out. And he erects this image as if to say, this is who you must become. Uh, and, and, And the sad thing is, this is who one must become if he should seek to dominate the earth. You must become made of stone. You must become ultimate. You must become timeless and ageless, become the namer of all things who does not know his own name. You must become frozen in time so as to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you must force all the humans of the world, which you control, to numb themselves so that they can keep being productive. Uh, You must convince them to spend millions of dollars to also never age or weaken or appear vulnerable. You must convince them to amass unspeakable amounts of debt to establish that they too are impervious to change. The king lifts up this image and reflects back to us who we have become. The king is like the algorithm, revealing to us who we are and what we we want. And then the king demands that everyone bow down and worship. He lifts up the mighty, stony immortality, and calls the lowly to bow down. He demands allegiance, worship, submission. He says, praise me, hail me, pledge allegiance to me, defend my honor, convert people to my cause, submit to this image, and assimilate. This king meets Jesus in the wilderness, do you remember? He met Jesus in the wilderness, and and it says he brought him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says in Luke 4, To you I will give their glory and all their authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. He says give yourself over to objective truth, ultimate truth timeless truth, admit that there is one perfect way to be human and that it is to be made of stone, to be brilliant and to feel nothing, to need nothing and ultimately to know nothing. But Daniel's God is not like the other kings. Daniel's God is a human one. Jesus's favorite name for himself is the son of man. As if to say, I- I'm not made of gold and silver. In John chapter 3, verse 13 to 17, it's a, it's a wild part of John. Jesus is talking and, and he says, I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man, the human one. Then he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And it's a striking moment in John 3 because that's the only time you get this image of Jesus being lifted up and exalted. Like the king of Babylon wakes up and lifts up an image of himself made of gold and it's massive and it's eternal. Jesus never has that except that he's lifted up. Um, He mentions this here in John 3, and, and we know what he's talking about, right? He was not lifted up as an unblemished golden statue. He was never crowned with a golden crown. Rather, in his lifting up, he was stripped naked and exposed as a loser, as a political opponent of Rome, as a troublemaker. He was stripped and exposed for the sham that he was, for underneath his clothing, there was no gold or bronze. A man made of skin and bone, caught within time and place, able to bleed and weep and cry and feel things deeply, able to confess and tell the truth about loneliness and despair. He was lifted up on a Roman cross. And in the lifting, we see the antithesis to the Nebuchadnezzars of the world and the dreams that keep dreaming for us. You see, in Daniel chapter 3, the very next chapter, The king threatens to punish everyone who does not assimilate to his dream. It says, so the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue or the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble, or as uh, indigenous theologian Randy Woodley says, when you hear the star-spangled banner, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound and all the peoples' nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans, people who had been fully assimilated, came forward and denounced the Jews. They began by saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. And these Chaldeans, apparently, reported that the colonized Jews had not bowed down. The ones called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not obeyed the command of the king. They had not pledged allegiance. They had not participated in the agenda of the golden, heartless king. The response of the men whose uh, indigenous names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, answered the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. (laughs) What an act of resistance. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their garments. They were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly and said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. He replied, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. So now, and this is such a a profound moment, Um, Nebuchadnezzar's response, this blows my mind, he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that part doesn't blow my mind, of course, like this is a a common thing. Blessed, like, wow, wow, your God is great. Like he admits, like, wow, uh, your God is, I'm sorry that I forced you to unlearn all of that in in the the school I I forced you to go to. Uh, He acknowledges that, blessed be their God, uh, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, and this is the king's decree. uh, This is not something that Daniel says or these three men say or the god of these men say. The king says, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And this text blew my mind this week as I was remembering that the colonizer invented the concept of hell. He says, this is the one true God. If you don't worship this true God, I will see to it that you burn in hell. And I I lingered in this part of the story for many hours this week, because I realized that the king who can only get you to do what he wants by threatening you with fire is an incompetent king. If we believe that Jesus is standing by to condemn us to hell, if we get up from the ground, what power does he have? I mean, think about it. What power does the king who fails to earn the trust of the vast majority of human beings really have? What power has the king who loses the fight for your affections every day to porn and Amazon? What power? This story in Daniel forces us to reckon with our theologies of heaven and hell. Because it seems like here that the scriptures are holding up a mirror and demanding that we examine ourselves and our beliefs about God and humanity and goodness. Do we worship a king like Nebuchadnezzar? Do we have to bow down lest we burn in his fiery furnace? I was struck this week to the point of tears remembering when I was a child, I was terrified of hell. I was afraid, I'm going to see you. some of you nod your heads, that if I said a swear word in the privacy of my own mind, At that exact moment, the rapture would happen and I would spend eternity in fiery torment. I lived in fear. You see, I did not freely run into the loving arms of God. I was frozen in fear of flames. I didn't tell my friends about Jesus because I thought Jesus genuinely loved them and could teach us what love really looks like. I didn't want my friends to burn in hell. I was afraid for my friends. I was really sad because I got an invitation to a party that's going to be the greatest party of my life. But at that party, there's going to be a torture chamber in the basement and my friends are going to be there. And I'd rather be with my friends, but at the party. And I don't know. Uh, But my my, my religious leaders just said, don't question it. God's way is higher than your way. And that was it. And then I stumbled across Daniel chapter 3. And I said, wait a minute. Is our king like the king of Babylon? Or is our God the one who is set on reconciling all things? whose heaven comes towards the earth and rains mercy and compassion upon the humans, who gives the earth to the meek and comforts all who mourn, who sees himself in the least of these, who comes as the virgin's son, the slain lamb, a prophet rejected in his hometown, abandoned by all who fear the shame that he did not fear, a king who can admit to feeling rejected by God. A king who speaks in parables and reveals the mystery of the kingdom to little children. A king who is lifted up on a Roman crucifix. Who, it turns out, did not die to change God's mind about you. As if child sacrifice could appease the wrath of a good king. We've heard this story before. Our God comes as a king who dies to change our mind about God to change our mind about violence and child sacrifice and, and fiery furnaces for those who don't obey. A God who can do more than offer a get out of hell free card. A God who can descend to the hell that humans have made and rescue those who've been held there. A God whose wrath doesn't just benefit himself. Think about that. The fiery furnace benefits no one but the king. And it works so well, if you think about it, that other subjugated peoples come and report Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. They carry them to the furnace themselves and die in service to the golden king. The cross benefits Caesar. The the cheap labor benefits Pharaoh. The fiery furnace only benefits the king of Babylon. Everything is flammable to that fire except maybe gold, silver, and bronze. The cheap labor benefits the CEO and the renter benefits the landlord, but the God who is named Jesus is not made of silver or gold. The God who is named Jesus appears to a lowly Hebrew named Moses and says, I know they don't know my name. I know there's a big golden statue and their gaze is being held by it. I know they don't know my name, but I have heard their cries. So take off your shoes because this is holy ground. This is the ground of liberation. There is a God. He is not made of gold. There is a God who can love. There is a God who can make his love perfect in our midst. A God who loves you. And a God from whose throne a river of justice flows. A God who is bent on making all things right. On reconciling all things on bringing the mighty down from their thrones Uh, not because he hates them uh, but because he believes that those who are not on the throne know more about wisdom and insight and belonging a God who says to the meek the land will belong to you it will be yours to make decisions on behalf of yours to dream about and yours to share And Daniel, in Daniel's God, we find a king who invites all of us to the table. He says, take and eat, all of you. And he's looking, of course, at that last supper. He's looking at people who will absolutely betray him, abandon him, lie about him, cheer on his death. He says, take and eat, all of you. Every time you gather, remember my body given for you, not my body made of gold erected, demanding your allegiance. Remember my body broken and on the cross being given to you. Remember the new treaty made in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, for the release from the grip of sin, for the hope of a new future, where tears will be wiped away, where death will finally give up the ghost, and where the home of God will finally be among mortals, which is the hope we are given in Revelation 21. So in this story this week, and I hope it's true for you, I found myself deeply unsettled as I remembered that I have lived a lot of my life in fear of that fiery furnace. And it made me wonder if I hadn't yet fully met the God who is there in the furnace, busting his people out of there. I pray, oh God, (laughs) that you would reveal the mysteries to us and first remind us that you have revealed your mysteries um, to children, to those uh, not in the center, I pray that you would um, hold our gaze, that we could turn for a moment from the golden statues, from that golden, ageless body that tells us to conform. I pray that you would help us to turn away from that radiant statue and see, uh, to see the world that you love. I pray that you would soften our hearts to become soft like yours that we would be able to see uh, your image in our neighbors, in one another, in the face that looks back at us in the mirror. I pray that you would turn us away from the pursuit of a timeless, ageless gold, and make us people who know what it is to be vulnerable, and to need one another, to be hungry, and to be satisfied. I pray that you would come towards us, proclaiming again that there is comfort for those who mourn and that there is a holy ground where liberation begins at the place where you speak your name. We thank you for the love that you did not stop pouring out and continue to pour out in this place. I pray that you create in us a hunger uh, for your love and your, your goodness. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and re- resurrected from the dead. Amen. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighbourhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty seven was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Soutena and the Canadian government. We honor that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at awaken bonus.